Matthew 21, 28 through 32. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said likewise, and he answered and said, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. There's three things um, that really, if, if we get any points out of this, there's three things I really want to uh, see driven home. Um, when, we come to, when we get into God's Word, three things to think about. I want us to consider when I am confronted, when I'm confronted with God's Word, the truth of Jesus and His authority, which most often is found in God's Word, right? When I'm confronted that, with that, when I'm confronted with it, what do I do? What's my reaction? And then the second point is, concerning God's will, concerning God's will, how do I know that I am doing my Father's will? How do I know that I'm doing my Father's will and not be driven by my own motives or my, my own desires? And then the third thing that I want us to get out of this is when I make the promise that I'm going to follow Jesus, what does that really mean? What does it really mean to follow Jesus? What is he calling us to? What does it mean to be a follower of the Messiah? So before we get into all this, I want to kind of backpedal a little bit because all this is coming out of the authority of God's Word. This section started in uh, Matthew 21, uh, verses around 23. And it reads, the events that led to this week's reading, it says, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you that authority? Everybody's got an authority over them. Everybody's got something that's leading them. You are being led by something right now. I mean, before you came in here all week, you were being led by something. Who is it? Or what is it? That's the question. That's a question that we all struggle with. That's the question I struggle with. Um, what am I, what's motivating me to do whatever I do at that given moment? Am I being led by the Spirit or am I being led by the flesh? And in this instance, they're asking Jesus, but what authority are you doing these things? They're asking and questioning Jesus' authority. The thing is, and Brian talked about it a little bit last week, they, they didn't ask him like, hey, Jesus, uh, who gave you this authority? They, they had an attitude. They were more like in an, in an accusatory way. Say, who gave you this authority? That's how they're asking him that question. These things, that he said, who gave you the authority to do these things, refers to all that Jesus was doing. But the question is a direct result of the three things that happened. The triumphal entry, uh, and then shortly after that, he goes and turns the tables over in the temple, and then after that, you get the kids, the children are giving praise to him. And they're like, they're questioning, who do you think you are to do those things? I mean, you think of the triumph. We had a parade yesterday. I could hear it all the way at my house. 
There's a pre- Imagine that triumphal entry when Jesus came into Jerusalem, and it would make that look like a little uh, quiet party. And you got all this noise and commotion stirred up about this, this guy's coming in here, Jesus is coming in here, and they're calling him king, they're calling him son of David, which is a messianic title, they're calling him the, the, the king, they're calling him the king of Jerusalem. And this, the problem was that these teachers and the scribes, they had, a, they had something they wanted. They wanted to be recognized that way. They wanted to be recognized with authority. And Jesus is coming in, and people are just giving him that authority. They're giving him that praise. And then he comes in right after that and cleans the temple. What's he saying by cleaning the temple? He's saying, I'm not, lo- I'm not allowing, this is my father's house, I'm not allowing the sacrilege that you got going on in your temple. And that should make us question that should make us question, because there's no temple for us to go to, is there? And you know what? Coming here isn't the place either. The temple's right here. We are the temple of God. If we are a follower of Christ, we are the temple of God. And so we got to wonder, what are we allowing in there? What are we allowing in our lives? What are we allowing that doesn't belong in there? We have to question that. And then he had the praise of children. The praise of children, it shamed the religious leaders. Because you even if you got little children, he said, you should be praising me. These children even see it. I'm just paraphrasing, but if the children can see it, and you religious leaders can't see, and you know the scriptures, what's going on there? And so he shamed the uh, scribes and the teachers. And so they asked him, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Authority is a big deal here. If, listen, if Jesus is just a long line of prophets or teachers or good guys, we got a problem because this guy's way out of line. This guy's coming here and doing all these things. He is way out of line. He, he is either a heretic or the devil himself, right? A guy can't be coming in here doing these things unless he's who he says he is. And if, the, if, he's not, if he's just in the long line of prophets, it has less, has less impact on people. It has less impact on the nation of Israel. It has less of an impact on me and you and in the entirety of the world and all of mankind and all of history. It's, it's, it's useless. And that's what people are doing with that today. But then, so the question is going to be, part of the question is going to be, what are you doing with the authority of Jesus? Who do you say that he is? If God did not step into time, in the flesh, in the likeness of man, in the likeness of Jesus, there's no point in having a B.C. and an A.D. Can anybody tell me what year it is? What year is it? How do we know that? It's 2023 because A.D. after death, but that's not entirely true. So B.C. does stand for before Christ. And after death, does not, that's not what it stands for. It's the, it's the word anno domini, which is a language, probably Latin, that I, don't, I haven't taken. <laughs> but it means in the year of our Lord, in the year of our Lord. And the whole world acknowledges Jesus came, whether they know it or not, if they have a calendar. If you have a calendar, you're acknowledging that Jesus came. So what, now we got this other calendar that's been around a little while, the BCE, Before Common Error, 
and then common error. And their, their goal is, and this is the purpose I found on their website, the purpose, um, <laughs> the purpose was the newer designations are better in that they are devoid of religious connotation and thus prevent offending other cultures and religions who may not see Jesus as Lord. But one day they will. Amen? There will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? So, ironic as it is, we still acknowledge that, <laughs> that Jesus made the calendar what it is today. And the purpose of the, that purpose, when they set the A, B.C. and A.D. into place, the purpose was to make the birth of Jesus Christ the dividing point in world history. And it is. And it will be until he returns. But the question still remains, if the praise of Jesus was re- he was receiving and the claims that he was making are unfounded, he is way out of line. And we would say he is even heretical, divisive, and evil. But on, on the side of this side of the death and resurrection, we know or we need to know that he is much more than an influencer of calendars. He is much more than a prophet or a teacher. He is much more than scribes and Pharisees were recognizing. God's word tells us that Jesus' reputation, his reputation was continually increasing as he went throughout the land proclaiming the gospel, teaching and doing miracles. People began to take notice of the authority from which he taught. When he was doing these things, he did it with authority. And this became a problem for the teachers and scribes and Pharisees because, for one, he didn't come from the scribes and teachers. Therefore, they had no control over it. If you would, you know what? If, you, if God calls you to do something, do it. If God calls you to do something, do it. Who's your authority? Who is your authority? If God calls you to do something, do it. It's just something that came upon me right now. I don't know. We need to be obedient to God's command. And regardless of what other men tell you, who they say you are, you are not made in man's image. You are made in the image of God. We are image bearers of Christ. So do follow God's will for your life. Pharisees had no idea where he came from. Remember at the age of 12, Jesus is teaching in the temple? He's teaching. He's asking questions. I can imagine. Can you imagine this 12-year-old coming up to you and say, have you not read? That would be great. Have you not read? I'm sure he was getting them all mixed up already at the age of 12. Have you not read? Don't you know? <laughs> I can just see it. Then later, in Matthew 13, 30, uh, 13, 55 to 56, it reads, Is this not the carpenter's son? He's just the carpenter's son. Is not his mother called Mary and his brother James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where did this man get these things? He don't know where it came from. He didn't come up, he didn't come up from the rabbinical school. He didn't go to Dallas Theological Seminary. 
right? This guy just came out of nowhere, right? He came from heaven to earth, right? We know that. So the people, even from his hometown, rejected him. Even from his hometown. He was known only as the carpenter's son. You want to be careful in trying to minimize who Jesus is. He was a good teacher. Well, he's a good moral teacher. He teaches us good Christian things, right? It's beyond that. It's much greater than that. C.S. Lewis said, and I'm going to read this quote, Jesus told people that their sins were forgiven. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. And this is C.S. Lewis talking, I am trying here to prevent anyone Anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or something else, or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus is God, and the name of Jesus brings clarity to who God is. He's our Lord and Savior, right? Amen? Because Jesus is not just a good teacher or just a prophet or just a good man or just in anything. He's not just the prophet prophesied about. He is the fulfillment of prophecies, past, present, and future. He is Mary's son, yet he is her Savior, Lord, and King. He's not just a good man. He is the son of man. He is the son of David. He is the son of God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way. There is no other hope. He is the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Jesus, though he may die, he shall live. He walked the earth to save mankind. He left the earth to make intercession for us for you and for me, and he one day will return to restore all things. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is God. He is the only God. He is our only hope. But because he had not been to the schools, because he had not been to the rabbinical schools, everything he says and does at this time is being discounted by the teachers and leaders. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see what they refuse to see, would be the answer. They're blinded by their expectations. Therefore, their point of view is that the Lord of creation is just a regular guy, even a heretic. They were trusting more in themselves than God's leading. They're trusting more in themselves than God. They trusted more in their knowledge. And we know that knowledge alone, in and of itself, without the Spirit of God working in us, just puffs us up. 
knowledge just enough to puff them up, but not enough to enable them to recognize the truth. What are we in danger of trusting in? Our knowledge or the Spirit of God leading us? Matthew 27, 28 to 29, following Jesus' teaching to the masses on the Sermon on the Mount, the Scriptures remind us that when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. I mean, can you imagine this guy around? Oh, jeez, this guy, he don't teach like you guys. He does way better. <laughs> How's that? What is meant by that? I don't get that. What is he meant by not as their scribes? Other teachers only supported, here's the deal. The other teachers, they only were raised up by rabbinical other teachers. Just passing it along, passing it along, which is good. We, get, we can get knowledge by passing knowledge along. But when our knowledge comes from heaven, when our teaching comes from heaven, when it comes from the Spirit of God, that's real knowledge. That's wisdom. They didn't have the wisdom. They weren't hearing from God because they were so puffed up. They were blinded. These guys have a history as we're going to learn next week, we're going to talk about next week. These guys have a history of rejecting the prophets and the teachers, the, the prophets and Jesus himself. They have a history of it. And we see, they kill them. That's what their reaction was. When they didn't like something, they have a history of just, let's kill them. Get rid of them. It's going to cost us something because we want to be in power. What does it cost you to let Jesus be in power? To really just surrender it all to Jesus. What's it going to cost you? Think about that as we're going through this. Think about it. What is it going to cost you? So Jesus, in other words, by the way he taught, with statements began with, but I say to you, I tell you, or better yet, verily, verily, or truly, truly, which means, or an amen, which means so be it. What Jesus is saying there is, I don't, whatever you think you've heard, whatever you think you understand, I am the final authority. You said, you, you said, like a couple few weeks ago, I was preaching, and, and it was about Moses gave us this law, and they were interpreting it all wrong. And Jesus would say, but I say to you, this is the right way to interpret it. So when Jesus says something, this is the way to interpret it. When Jesus says it, it's the final word. So he was ascribing to himself a certain authority that was not from mere men, but from above He's the finality. He's the Alpha and Omega. Listen to this from John 12, 44 to 50. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. Trusting in anything besides Jesus is abiding in darkness. If your hope is your 401k, if your hope is in the foundation of our constitution even, or our country, if your hope is in that, in your bank account, that's in darkness. It's going to go. It's going to burn up. It's not going to make it. It's not going to survive the second coming. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. This is an invitation. 
I've come to save the world. I come to save you from your wrong hopes, from walking in darkness. I came to save you. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Jesus was explaining that all he has said and will ever say is from God the Father. It is God's words. And it says in John 10.30, and this is an important point to add, 6 short words i and my father are one and like pilate later the teachers and the scribes failed to recognize the truth standing right before him truth in the flesh truth manifested god in the likeness of man jesus christ so when jesus spoke with this unwavering authority it was problematic for them, and so they questioned, his, they questioned his authority. By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you that authority? And then Jesus turns the tables like Jesus does so well. Jesus asked them a question about the baptism of John. Where did it come? Did it come from heaven, or did it come from man? He wanted to find out their intention, what their true thoughts were. He already knew, but they, he knew if they answered that question, they were kind of like being politicians. I'm sorry, John. <laughs> but you don't want to be on one side or the other. You've got to be on the side of the truth. You can't kill truth. Truth's going to come back. It will come back. So he, he tra- it was a trap question for them. If they answer that it's from, it's from heaven, they all say, why didn't you do these things? And they say if it was from man, the people would get mad and say, well, they'd go after him. And their answer was, we, do not, we don't know. You, you don't want to make a decision is what the answer is. It's just a way of avoiding answering the question. Man, if we just stand on one side, stand on the side of truth, if we would just stand on the side of truth and everything else, just toss it aside. Just stand for something that's true. No, not these guys. I don't know where it came from. It's like the kid, when you ever catch your kid doing something wrong, why were you doing such and such? I don't know. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Come on. Man up. Anyway, Jesus' question confronted them, and they had to decide what they would do with what he had done, with what he had said, with his miracles and who he claimed to be. We got to decide. This is the first point. We got to decide. When I'm confronted with the truth of Jesus, with his authority, when I'm confronted with his authority, which is most often found in his word, what do I do? What do I do with that? I mean, we got three choices. Maybe more. You may be able to come up with more. But do I, first choice, do I make excuses why I don't follow God's word? Why I'm like, that one's just for... Somebody else. Do I just put that one aside? Do I make excuses? You know what Romans one twenty says? 
Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the, way, by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Nobody's got an excuse. Nobody has an excuse. It won't work. Am I living in sin? Just saying it's a small sin. Just keep it under here. Nobody can see. Nobody can see that one. Am I just having partial obedience? What are you, what are you, hey, to delay is to disobey. Is that what we tell our kids? If you, only, if you be, obey me 99%, is that obedience? To the, you say it to your kids, but do we allow ourselves to be under the authority of Jesus, under his word? Under his authority. Are we be obedient as we want our children to be obedient to us? Ouch. I, I'm guilty. I said, do as I do and not as I say. So we have selective obedience. <laughs> Unwilling to deny self. Maybe we blame others. You know, I, I'm like really a master at blaming Joanne for things. <laughs> like I'm trying to go over and get my shoe and I trip on something else. And, and I blame her for... My other shoe being over there. <laughs> this is just dumb. Sometimes we do dumb things. We always want to blame somebody. Or do, or do I, do, so do I make excuses or do I get upset and become defensive? Well, how could you accuse me? Of, well, who do you, th- you know, you start questioning and blaming other people? It's kind of the opposite would be like what Nathan, when Nathan and David had that confrontation. Remember David? Nathan come to David? He said, suppose a guy did such and such. And da 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 This is kind of what Jesus is doing with the, uh, with the Pharisees and the teachers. And he says, you're the man. You are the man. Adam made a lot of excuses, didn't he? It's that woman you gave me. <laughs> You know, David could have, when Nathan confronted David, he could have said, you know, just like with the prophets, and they did before with the prophets. If you don't like what they're saying, take him out back. No more. No more. I don't like that prophet. Off with his head. David could have eliminated that prophet. Instead, David received the truth, repented, and accepted the consequences. You know how sometimes it's hard to accept the consequences. The grief that followed the, consequent, the consequences is written in Psalm 51. We read it as David is utterly devastated, utterly broken by his sin. And he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. This is important. You know, when you sin against your wife or your wife sin against your husband or da-da-da-da-da, all your sin is against the Lord. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. When we blame shift or when we make excuses, we're sinning against God. Or do I make changes? Or do I make changes? 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly sorrow produces repentance. Repent means to turn away, 
turn 180 degrees, go the opposite directions. How many times do you start walking in the wrong direction and you, all right, I'm repenting, and then you turn right back around and go to it? You, or you put it on a yo-yo string. I don't want, I'm, get rid of that, and it comes right back at you. But godly repentance leads to salvation, and it's not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. That's, that's the death-producing repentance. We need to embrace repentance that turns away from sin. So when I'm confronted with the truth, I need to be broken. I need to be repentant. I need to recognize that my sin is not only against the person I sinned against, but it's against God as well. All sins against God. So I need to confess my sins. The Bible tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Keep confessing. It's a life Long pursuit. Repentance isn't once. I did that once. It's a lifelong pursuit where we keep repenting. We live a life of repentance. Don't go down the slippery slope of self-pride, self-righteousness, the same one that the chief priest was on and the elders of the people found themselves on. And then now Jesus begins to teach this, now the sermon. Now we're going to get into the sermon. This is the text that we're at. I'm going to go fast because we've only got a, few, a little bit of time. Now, Jesus begins to teach them using parables. Remember, the purpose of a parable is to illustrate a spiritual truth in relatable ways. It's to hide or keep a mystery from those who do not have interest or see their need of spiritual things or the things of God. Parables are often used to proclaim, and this is what's in the next couple of weeks, this is what Jesus is doing. These parables, he's using to proclaim the judgment and mercy of God. You'll see both the judgment and mercy of God. So unpacking this parable, Jesus starts it with a question. Jesus initiates the conversation with a question, reversing the roles of him being questioned and their attempts to question him. He says, what do you think? Which of the two did the will of his father? That's how he opens it. He does this the next week, or at the end of this, he does this at the end of this same section. And what will, um, which of the two did the will of his father? What do you think? I'm sorry, I got, let me backtrack a minute. So in these parables, he's going to ask questions. And that's the most common way that Jesus deals with the confrontation. He says, what do you think? Which of the two did the will of his father at the end of that? What he's doing in this sermon, or (laughs) what he's doing in this text is forcing them to state their own guilt. That's what I want to say. Here we have two sons, one that says he will not do what his father asks of him, and then he does it. Another says he will do what he is told, but then doesn't do it. And this is the important point right here. This parable distinguishes between mere profession and active compliance. Mere profession and active compliance. What we should take notice of here is that the son that is obedient to the father, the one that does the father's will, is repentant. Notice in verse 29, he answered and said, I will not, I will not, I will not do it, 
but afterward he regretted it and he went and did the Father's will. He regretted it. He changed his mind. He made a course correction. He saw this is the wrong direction to go. I'm doing the wrong thing here. So he made a course correction. This is a lot like working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Like, I'm not doing this right. I need to make a course correction. I'm following my own flesh. I'm following my own will, and I'm not following the will of Jesus. So I'm making a course correction. I'm getting back on track. And he goes on to say in verse 32, Jesus does, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe You did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. You know what John was saying? He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then towards the end of his ministry, when he was getting ready to baptize Jesus, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John is pointing towards Jesus, and they would not believe That's why it's a big deal of what John was saying, because John was pointing to Jesus. So it's more than actions speak louder than words. Digging into the nuances of these verses of what's going on here um, when it comes to doing the will of the Father, the will of God. Notice, doing the will of the Father here is contrasted. I said it before. It's contrasted with a mere profession. It's more than what one says. Jesus' warnings in Matthew 7, 21 point to that same thing. Not everyone who says to me, not everyone who says to me, it's not only your words, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Then in Matthew twelve fifty, Jesus further clarifies the discipleship group. Look at 12.50. If you write it down, look at it later if you don't have time. But his followers give, he gives an even deeper meaning of who his followers are. One that identifies us as part of his family. He's, listen to these words. For, for, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He's calling those into his family, he's calling us into his family as image bearers. We will look like Christ if we are image bearers of Christ. If we are, if we are brought into his family, we will resemble our Savior. We'll be changing, we'll be looking like our Savior. I remember one time, I was, uh, we were at Myers. that's a grocery store out in the Midwest. We were, we were going through a checkout line. My son, I think... It was, it was Tyler. He's like three years old. He was in the grocery cart. And the lady's checking us out, you know, checking us out. And um, she looked at him and then looked at me and said, are you Gary? Now, this, is, this was weird. She used to babysit me when I was three years old. <laughs> and I hadn't seen this lady in years, like 20 years like years and years. You know what? Listen, when, when people look at us, they, are you a Christian? That's the image. That's what we should project. It should be like that. That we're so bathed and saturated in the love of God that it just oozes out of us. And then people will say, 
You're not like the rest of those people from Montana. Are you, you know, or Michigan or wherever? You're different. I remember I was working in a jail one time. It was right after I got saved. I mean, I'm on fire for the Lord. I'm like playing Christian music and annoying people. I'm like, <laughs> like dang, talk. Dial that down. No, don't dial that down. But this guy, this big dude comes out. He's an inmate. He was like knocking on the window. I'm like, what could it be? What do you want? And he said, what? There's something about you. And I got to witness to him. And he, 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 he gave his life to the Lord. And I'm like, you know, it just oozes out of us so people are curious. We don't need, Jesus said, don't hide that candle under a bushel, under the bed or whatever. Let your light shine. Now I lost where I was at. <laughs> but you know what it is? It's the imputed righteousness of Christ working through us. The imputed, righteous, imputed righteousness is not, not what we forget. It's not only that Jesus took our sin upon him. He took our sin. Snatched it off. When you believe in him, he took it, just right, took it right, put it on him. He put it on himself. And that's only half the story. It's only half the story. The other part is he took his righteousness and gave it to you. So when you believe in Jesus Christ, when you put your faith in Christ, when you repent of your sins and go, I'm following him. When you repent and follow him, that, the righteousness of Christ is on you. And so when you die and you're in the presence of God, he sees his son. He don't see you. I don't want him to see me. I'm full of sin. But it's covered in the blood of Jesus. That's what imputed righteousness does. The verse tells us about that in Romans 4, 23 to 25. He says, Now it was written for his sake, referring to the faith of Abraham, alone that it was imputed, it was put upon him, but also for us, also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses. You think the Romans killed him? Do you think the Pharisees killed him? It was our sin that killed him. And you know what? God crushed him. God crushed the son because he wanted to restore a relationship with us. He crushed his own son. And he looked on it and he said, it is good. This is a good thing. It pleased the Lord to do so. Because it was the only way he could restore our relationship with him. This is what the family of God is. Our, rest our restored relationship with Jesus Christ. Behold what manner of love that the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. That's the God, that is God's will. That we would be children of God. This is the will of God. And so how do I know that I'm doing my Father's will? Am I a part of the family of God? Am I a new creation? Am I truly a new creation? God is waiting. It says in 2 Peter 3 and 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance. So am I in Christ? Am I really in Christ? The will of the Father is that I would be in Christ. That the Spirit of God would be in me. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If you're a new creation, you know you can't keep doing the same things that, that, that you do. You can't keep sinning. God's going to snatch you over and get you on the right direction. 
Are you a new creation? The will of the Father is that we sin no more. He knows we're going to struggle. His grace is sufficient, but we turn from sin. We constantly live a life of repentance and turn to God for help. Turn to the Spirit to guide us out of sin. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Galatians 6, 3, 26 to 27 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Does my life reflect Christ? The will of God is that our life would reflect Christ. How am I dealing with sin? We're image bearers. Do I do battle with sin? Am I honest with my sin? Listen, Psalm 139, 23 to 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me. Lead me to the way everlasting. Listen, I'm going to speed through this. I run out of time, big time. That's all right. This is, this is what God's given us. Look, we are image bearers. We're called to be image bearers. And there's more to it than just say I'm an image bearer. We got to do something with that. We got to let, we got to remember that we're redeemed. We got to remember that we're Christ's followers. We remember and be in God's word and seek God in everything that we do. We can't, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means that I allow Christ to intervene in every part of my life. I don't have nothing hidden. You know you can't hide anything from God. Do you know you, if you think that, that click on the internet or whatever it is you're doing, you're not hiding from God. You might be hiding it from your spouse. You might be hiding it from somebody else. You might be hiding it from your employer. But God sees everything. Give everything to God. God wants your heart and your soul. That is the will of God. And what it means to follow Christ is to mean that we turn everything over to him wholeheartedly. We give everything to him. Nothing held back. You know, it says, when Peter... And Andrew left to follow Christ. They left their nets. They left their nets. They left, left the fishing industry. Now, maybe God isn't calling you to quit your job. Maybe he wants you to stay there to be a witness. But seek God. He wants, he wants your job. He wants your house. He's already got all these things. Why don't you just give it to him? Right? It's all his anyway. Just give him, you're, we're called to be living sacrifice. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the tender mercies of God, because God has done such a great thing for you, because God has sent Christ, beseech you to give your body as a living sacrifice. And do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Constantly seeking God, constantly seeking Christ, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and beating it into submission when you sin. Beat it. Your obedience is punishing disobedience. So to follow Christ is to do everything you do wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly for him. Wholeheartedly for him. And that's where I'm going to stop because you guys probably want to go to the fellowship hall and eat some of my cookies. <laughs> but I'm, I got to wonder, if there is somebody here, if there's anyone here who really hasn't given all, their all to Christ, if, you, if today's the day that God is talking to you, I, talk to me afterwards. I want to talk with you. 
And then maybe you're just like, I'm kind of half in, I'm half out. You know, you can't, Jesus said you can't love both God and money. You've got to be all in. We don't look, you can't, you get that, you don't look back, you put the plow going that way, I'm following Jesus, and you keep going that way. When you slip, just get, make that course correction and get back on track. And thank God for his Holy Spirit that brings conviction on you. So, that's where we're at. Next week, we'll be getting a little bit more on this. <laughs> Maybe a lot more. But we'll just thank God for what he's given us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you for him. Thank you that you haven't left us to our sin, but that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins. Thank you that we have new life in you. Thank you that we can gather here and worship you for who you are and what you are doing in our lives. We pray that you would continue because what you are, you're the author and perfecter of our salvation. So Lord, continue to do a work in our hearts. Guide us in your truth and help us to go out of here into the darkness, proclaiming the love of Christ. Help us to just overflow with your goodness so that others may be curious and want to know about the love of Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.